good to see everyone out this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, we're going to be really thinking about uh, part of that chapter in just a moment. Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> As I said, it's good to see everyone here. Uh, good to just be able to worship God once more and uh, particularly to be able to do so just with such ease and, and how blessed we are to not have to worry about the same things kind of uh, alluded to in the Bible class that the Christians in the first century did. The, the sufferings, the persecutions were, were very blessed and I think a lot of times we're kind of spoiled. We, we forget all the spiritual blessings we have in Jesus. The fact that we are able to draw near to him, draw near to God uh, as as. Uh, a royal priesthood of his kingdom and so just always want to make 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 mention that that we need to never take those blessings for granted that we have so many blessings uh spiritual spiritual and physical specifically because of uh our god well like i said if you want to turn to matthew 25 and you might just put a bookmark there because this is going to be the passage that we really focus on for the majority of our time this morning. But when you look at Matthew 25, in fact, if you read the article already, there it's a, it's funny because the title is Reading Matthew 25 as a Unit and reading the entire chapter and, and making the application as you go. And I think that's very helpful. That's why I put it in the bulletin. That's not what we're going to do this morning. I want to look at specifically the latter half of this chapter because, frankly, it would be kind of hard to go through everything in the entire chapter. But, but Matthew 25 is filled with just intense applications and teachings from Jesus to his disciples, to those who would want to be his followers and who want to look more like him every day and be more like him every day. Perhaps the most intense, though, is when we learn at the very end of the chapter uh, what is coming, the, kind of the why, the ultimate conclusion. And so uh, let's begin in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. Matthew 25 and verse 31. It says, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. And so from the very beginning, before He gets into uh, some of the deeper applications, He starts with what is coming, what's going to happen. There is going to be a separation. But what kind of separation are we talking about here? Well, in verse 46, at the very end of this passage, Jesus makes it very clear if we don't already understand the illusion or the, or the, uh, the imagery that he is making here of what is going to happen, what the reality is. And in verse 46, he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what is Christ talking about here? This separation that's going to take place. This separation is going to be between heaven and hell. It is going to be between eternal life and glory and a beautiful fellowship with God or eternal judgment and fire and pain and suffering and separation from God. So that's really what he's talking about here. And he makes it clear from the beginning and even at the very end, it's kind of bookmarked as judgment is coming. In between, he kind of gives us a line, though. And, and so really, I want to focus on that line as we consider this question of which side will I fall on? Is it going to be heaven or is it going to be hell? Which side am I leaning towards? And again, I think that there are many things that we might think of that would keep us from heaven, keep us out of heaven. Many temptations that, that we can look at. Many sins that people engage in that do kind of hinder their path as they're striving towards heaven. There's all kinds of things we could say. But Jesus makes a very specific 
application in this chapter. And so I want to look at what does Jesus say here is the line of demarcation between ending up in heaven or hell. And so let's just read beginning in verse 34, Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34, picking up where we left off, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And again, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what is the line? Just two main things that I want to focus on. And the first being, it is literally the personal treatment of God's people. It is how we treat our brethren. It's, you know, I just think that's so interesting. How I treat my brothers and sisters, Christians, fellow Christians, will be a foundational element of whether I go to heaven or hell. Now, again, I know that there's many other applications we can make of temptations, sins that will keep us out of heaven. But here in this passage, Jesus focuses on specifically our relationship to one another. And, and frankly, we're not talking about our relationship or our associations with the world. This is specifically our associations with our brethren, the church. And so with that being said, you think about that. That this is not just talking about our relationships, but my interaction with the people, not just, you know, across the globe, but specifically the people in this room. What we want to do is when we look at the Bible, we want to make sure we're making the application that God would want us to make, and specifically that personal application in our own lives. Let's not miss the point so what are we supposed to be thinking about? My interactions with the brethren in this room, the people sitting next to me right now or across from me in the room. Now, this would have been a terrifying realization for the Pharisee because these were people that never really treated brethren well. In fact, in Matthew 23 and verse 4, he talks about how they tie up heavy burdens on people and they would never lift their finger to help. They would never lift their finger to lift that burden. And so the, the Pharisees, they were people that really, they really wanted to be righteous for God and, and they really wanted to, to better themselves so that way they could get closer to God, but they did that at the expense of God's people. And so for them, hearing this lesson from Jesus, that would have been kind of terrifying. That would have been a little bit scary. Now, so I, I want to ask, though, this morning, that with that being said, are you like the Pharisee? Is this teaching scary for you? When we have to think about what Jesus says here, the main application, the specific lesson, does that send shivers down our spine? Or does that fill us with joy? 
That's the question that we need to answer this morning. That, that, and, and, and again, I, I want to think about me personally. You think about the, just the people in this room ask, if my interaction with these people was going to be the, the deciding factor of my fate, where would I go? Not tomorrow, not next week, but if I left this earth right now. How's my interactions been with my brethren? Now, why does he say that this is so important? Because ultimately, as is always the case, it is connected to him. It's not just about how we treat brethren. It's about how we treat Jesus himself. And, we, and you already know, know where I'm going with this. In verses 40 and 45, in both cases, he says, to, if you, you do it to the least of my brethren, you've done it to me. You haven't done it to the least of my brethren, you haven't done it to me. If you have visited the sick, the least of my brethren, guess what? You visited me. If you have hurt the least of my brethren, guess who you've hurt? And so both of these things, I think, are equally, uh, well, if not equally, very close in importance. I think ultimately it comes down to we need to make sure that we're treating God, Jesus, as, as our highest regard. But Jesus ties these two together. And doesn't it just make sense because the greatest commandments are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. I just think it's amazing that all, all the way throughout the New Testament, all the way throughout the Bible, in fact, you never really get outside of those two greatest commandments. It all comes back to that, doesn't it? So how do we treat brethren? How do we treat Christ? And I, and I have to say, this should fill us with joy. This is a way that we can minister to Jesus, that we can serve him, that we can tend to him. You know, if I asked, I think anybody in this room, if you could just, if you knew that you could, Tend to Christ's needs while he was on earth. If, if you knew that you could give him shelter when he had nowhere to lay his head. If you knew that you could give him familial hospitality or a, a family visit, would you do it? I think everyone in this room would jump at the opportunity. I actually get to see Jesus with my own eyes and I get to serve him in that capacity? Sign me up. But... And really, that, sh that should be so beautiful to us. After everything he's done for us, I think it, it would just fill us with immense joy that we could just give a portion back in a very personal way. And in fact, I think that this is a very personal way that we can give back. So let me ask once more, how have you treated Christ? How have you treated him personally? It all comes back to how have you treated your brethren? Have you cared for him? Have you ministered to him? Or have you abandoned him? And neglected him. The answer, again, goes back to our first point. That is with our brethren, uh, the, the fellow Christians that we worship with, that we work with, that we have fellowship with. And so for the rest of the lesson, I want to just try to answer that question. How have I been treating my brethren? How have I treated Jesus? How am I treating Christ through my brethren? Am I doing my best in this? Or have I kind of let things go? And I want to do this by just looking at a few passages here. And the first passage I want to look at is in Acts chapter 9. You remember this story. It's the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. When he is on his way to Damascus, after much persecution of the church, and on his way to Damascus to do worse, he sees a vision of the Lord, and, and Jesus begins speaking to him. And this is the por portion of the scripture that I want to look at in Acts chapter 9 and verse 3, beginning. It says, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. Now, I don't know if you can get any more clear than a passage like this. And I know that this is outside of our, our thematic text in Matthew chapter 25. But, but listen to what Jesus is saying here. What had Paul done? He had persecuted the church. Was Jesus on earth? Was this the time of his ministry? No, he had actually already been put on the cross. He'd been resurrected. He had ascended back into heaven. And, and it's been a little bit of time since then. So this wasn't during his ministry. Jesus was in heaven. But what does Jesus say? Though he had been persecuting the church, he, he makes it very personal. What did Jesus say Paul did? You have been persecuting me. I am the one that you have been hurting. I am the one that you have been trying to put to death. It's me. And again, we make that connection that he was persecuting Christ's bride. We, he was persecuting the body of Christ. And so therefore, what does that mean? He was actually hurting him. Jesus takes this very personally. Now thinking about what we were reading in Matthew chapter 25, how does this happen today? How can this happen today? And first of all, I would just say whenever a Christian is mistreated, Christ is mistreated. So you think about all the different ways that we can harm our brethren. You know, when, when you, we talk so much about how the world persecutes us. We talk so much about how the world hurts us. Sometimes it's not the world. Sometimes it's brethren isn't it? And that's something that, frankly, we have to be direct about and deal with. And, and, and frankly, we have to be honest with ourselves and make sure that we have not been the aggressors, that we have not been like Saul of Tarsus, the one persecuting the church of Christ, the one persecuting Christ himself. So every time a Christian is mistreated, what does that look like? Every time I gossip about a fellow brother or sister in Christ, you know what I've just done? I've gossiped about Christ himself. Because what did Jesus say to Paul? It is me whom you're persecuting. It is me whom you're gossiping against. Every time I slander my brother or my sister in Christ, guess what I've just done? I've ultimately slandered him. My Lord, my Savior, the one that I say I love more than anything and anyone, the one that I would give anything for. It's so easy to say that in the moment, but then when push comes to shove, how easy it is to forget that. I, I, I was talking to someone earlier this week about how, you know, when it comes to the, our deepest relationships, and I, and I use Paige as an example because she's my wife, and I, I would do anything for her. I would take any amount of pain. I would take a bullet for her. I say all these things, and I really do mean it. But then there's a day that comes when I get kind of frustrated, and I just things just keep happening that I get angry and angry and angry, and then all of a sudden she says one little thing, and I blow up on her. Man, did I really mean it when I said I would do anything for you? I would take any amount of pain. I wasn't willing to take just a tiny little bit of aggravation before I just lashed out on her. And, and frankly, I, I think it, I, I'm reminded of Peter. I think he meant it when he told Jesus, I'm willing to go to death for you. I really think he was sincere. But we can very easily forget it when we're in the moment, right? <laughs> I would never, I would never put Jesus on the cross. I would never make him bleed. I would never slander him. I would never gossip about him. But what have I done when I've done it to his people? He says, you are persecuting me. So every time we mistreat our brethren, we are mistreating Christ. Every time a brother or sister is neglected, Christ is being neglected. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 25, when I was sick and when I was in prison, you visited me or to the, to the ones that go to the left, to the goats, you never visited me. And one of the things that strikes me about that, that passage is what their response is. Lord, how, how are we supposed to know? If I had seen you, 
Of course I would have tended to you if I had just seen you with my own eyes. And I think that's, that kind of uh, is, is similar to an excuse that people like to use today. If I could just see him with my own eyes, then I'd believe. If I could just see him with my own eyes, then I would do what he told me to do. Then I would obey. And I think we fall into that temptation as well. Jesus, if I saw this happening to you, I'd be the first to respond. But you didn't when it came to my people. Have we mistreated our brethren? Have we neglected our brethren? If we have, we have mistreated and we have neglected Christ. And you could go on. All the many ways that we can harm our brethren. What an offense it is to Christ himself. Well, not only this passage, but I like to look at James chapter 2. You recall in James chapter 2, uh, James is making a case about faith. And he's talking about what dead faith looks like. And in, it's an inactive faith. And, and he uses an, as an example, verses 15 through 16, he says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What, what use is that? And so is faith without works. It's a dead faith. But I like how he uses this example to make the case. What, what is someone doing? They're, 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 they're giving the talk, but they're not walking the walk, right? This is describing a Christian who is all talk and no action. Describing the Christian who's all talk and no walk. And, and, and so... We need to make the application in our own lives when it comes to our words to our brethren, when it comes to the sentiments that we give, when it comes to our sympathies. A lot of times we offer those and really don't mean anything by it. And, and, and I think, I'm not saying it always is the case, but I think a lot of times, <laughs> I think a lot of times we're, we're speaking with lying lips. How many times have you, have you said to somebody, I hope everything works out for you, and I really hope, you know, under your breath, that you don't ask for my help to get through this. <laughs> Or, or, or we, we extend that kind of pleasantry to someone and then when we get in the car we start talking to our wife or our husband or whatever and we say, man, I really hope that he doesn't ask me. This is, what, this is what I always think about. My dad had a pickup truck growing up and if you have a pickup truck, you know where I'm going with this. But having a pickup truck, uh, you know, people would see that every single service and so they start to memorize who drives those things and whenever there was a move that was needed, whenever there was something heavy that needed to be transported, guess who they called? And at some point, you know, I love, I, I, my dad was always willing to offer his services, but he wasn't necessarily excited about offering those services. And frankly, I wasn't either. I, I think I got more mad at him when people accepted that offer. Because guess what? I was going to be the one having to move the washer or the dryer. Uh, funny story, that's whenever we had to do something like that. Whenever there was manual labor required, uh, my dad always had me and my brother, because we were twins and the same age, and he, he'd always have me and my brother do that thing, and we would kind of start complaining, and dad would say, you know, boys, this is the reason I had two sons, so that way I didn't have to do all the <laughs> manual labor myself. They could do it for me. And so, frankly, I would get more upset with him whenever he'd give that invitation, say, I'm willing to help if I can. Great, because now that means I have to. But I'll tell you what, I'm very thankful for those moments that he did take me along in those, uh, take me along in those works when he would include me and my brother to help. Because what is he teaching us? The value of serving. Because it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be necessarily uh, fitting my schedule. But what are we going to do? We're, we're going we're to bend the schedule a little bit so that way we can help. I'm thankful for those moments because what he taught me was some eternal truths that I think we learn from the Bible. That we need to be sincere. We need to be active in our words when we offer something. When we offer our sympathies. You know, 
you, for, for example, I, there was a story that, that I had read about or maybe heard about, I can't remember now, but there was an old elderly man, he was by himself, he was a widower, and he was someone that really, he, he, being elderly, he was not able to do a lot of the manual labor around his house, around his own house. And there was some work he had to do where he was getting up on a ladder. And one day, one of his fellow Christians that, that uh, attended where, where he was worshiping, they went by his house, they drove by, they saw him on a ladder, and they were just absolutely outraged. And when he got to the service the next Wednesday, he, they said, How, what are you thinking? What are you doing getting up on a ladder? You can't handle that kind of work. You shouldn't be the one doing that. Why is it that you, why in the world would you decide that this is the best option for you to get something like this fixed? And, and you know, he listened to the outrage. And frankly, he was making a lot of good points. And ultimately what the old man said was, well, I was waiting for somebody to come by and see that I needed help and do the work for me. <laughs> that man didn't. I mean, he was... He was very open about the outrage. You shouldn't be doing this. But when he saw a need, he didn't go and be the one to fill it. He wasn't the one that was going to stop and, and have to bend his schedule around that day to make sure that the job got done. No, he thought, that, that is stupid. I can't believe he's doing that. He shouldn't be doing that. Maybe so. But, but what did you do? <laughs> That's the real question. And we need to ask ourselves that. What have I done? When I see that something is needed, am I going to act on that? Or am I going to like what James says in chapter 2? They say, you know what? I see that you need warmth. I see that you need clothes. Be warmed. Be filled. But I'm not going to give them any food. I'm not going to give them any clothing. What does that mean? It's empty. It's an empty promise. It's empty sympathy. And so we need to be careful that we don't follow after that same kind of pattern. That we are treating, that we are ministering to Christ by treating our brethren, ministering to them in a sincere and active way. Well, finally, 1 John, in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, look at what John says here. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. What is he lying about? For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. What is he saying that the man is lying about? He, not, that, not that he's lying about his love or his apathy for his brother. He's lying about the fact that he loves God. And, wh and why does John say that? Because you cannot, you just, you cannot love God, your brother. Those things don't connect because remember, these are the greatest commandments. They go together. And if one is off kilter, the other one's going to be off as well. They go hand in hand. And so if you say, I love God, but I just, I, I, I don't really care for that brother. I, how honest are you being with yourself? If, if that is you. What has this person done that John is talking about? They, they're not just, not, they haven't just shown hatred or apathy for their brother, but more so to the point of Matthew chapter 25, they have shown that more so towards God. So if we have apathy or hatred for our brother, what does that say about how we truly, truly feel about God? Is my love for God real? Or am I like a Pharisee, not realizing that I'm just truly apathetic for him? There's just a gross lack of love there. I remember in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because I think this is a good example of this. When they would say, Oh, whatever we would give to I know that the, the scriptures say honor your father and mother, but whatever we would give to them, we actually have dedicated to the Lord. So we can't really do anything for them. We can't really do anything about that. 
And Jesus rebukes them. Why? Because they've used one command to not have to follow another. What they have done is say, of course I love God. And in fact, I love him so much, I can't actually love my brother. Does that compute? No, no. A complete imbalance of the scriptures. It's a complete misunderstanding of the scriptures. And that was the issues with the Pharisee was that they, they did, they, I really believe that they were sincere in the fact that they wanted to love God, but they didn't realize that they didn't love him enough when they did not love their brethren. And so what might that look like? Maybe, maybe there's a Christian among us that's suffering, maybe they're suffering alone. And, and, and maybe it's a, it's a certain brother or sister that we just, we just can't really stand. And so what do we say? I just, I don't really care for them. I'll let somebody else take care of that. Translation, Christ isn't enough for me to go the extra mile for that brother or sister. That, I mean, that's what we're really saying. That he's not enough. Or maybe it's, it's someone that has hurt us. Maybe it's someone that we, just can't, that we are bitter or angry against. And what do we say when maybe they're trying to get some help or maybe, they, maybe they've actually done wrong and they're trying to make things right. What do we say about that person? We might say, I don't care what they do. They've made their bed. Now they need to lie in it. Translation, once more. Christ isn't enough for me to forgive that person. What Christ did on the cross for me Showing me grace when it wasn't deserved, it's not enough for me to do the same for a brother of mine. For even the least of these, my brethren. We need to be so careful that we are making the application that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 25 and not just trying to skirt around the lesson. How have I treated my Savior? Do I really love him? A good indication. How have I been treating my brethren? What has my interactions been like with my brethren? So, with all that in mind, again, which side will you fall on? Which side will I fall on? Particularly thinking about this chapter. Am I making the application? Or am I like the Pharisees, allowing myself to be deceived, to be blinded in thinking that I am a very sincere, I'm a very devout Christian. If you are a Christian, maybe... Maybe like the Pharisees, you, you have been, you think you've been sincere towards God, but you have been struggling with some issues with brethren. You've been struggling with some animus feelings. Maybe you've had some bitterness. Let me tell you something. There's not one, there's not one negative emotion. Guilt, shame, bitterness, righteous indignance. There, there's not one negative emotion that cannot be satisfied at the cross. So maybe what we need to do is come back to the cross. Maybe we've strayed a little bit further than we need to. Maybe we've just strayed at all. We need to come back to it. Let it be satisfied there. And be forgiven and, and because we have an advocate in heaven. Make sure that you don't leave this building with any doubt in your mind that you're not going to be with him this very day should your life be taken from you. If you're not a Christian, I would say just, just understand it doesn't matter how good you treat God's people. How have you treated him ultimately if you have not accepted his conditions to become a Christian? If you have not accepted that sacrifice the way that he says you need to? Maybe you're someone who says, I'm willing to go the extra mile for his people, but I'm not willing to go the extra mile and get rid of this sin that's in my life. I'm not willing to go that far. It doesn't matter how good you treat his people. Guess which side you're going to fall on in the judgment. 
Are you willing to let go of those old sins? Are you willing to accept Christ the way he says to? Are you willing to hear everything that he has given for us to follow? Are you willing to believe all of that, be faithful in it, make a confession based on that belief, repent of everything he says to do away with, and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life? You can have salvation this very morning. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward. Let your need be made known as we stand and as we sing.